Well, this morning we are focused on the second half of 1 Samuel 16. Uh, Josh read the whole chapter for us, and that helps us remember that last week we were focused on the section where David was anointed as king, and it was a clandestine anointing, if you remember, because there was great concern that Saul would kill Samuel, and then, of course, no doubt he'd come after David if he found out that David had been anointed as king. Uh, Saul was still uh, stubbornly holding on to his royal position, even though the Lord had rejected him for his continual disobedience as king in Israel. Uh, but even though Saul's hard heart had, had caused him to continue to serve himself and, and not submit to the Lord and his purposes, we did see that the Lord's purposes uh, continue to stand. So God had said he would appoint a replacement for King Saul, and that's exactly what happened. Instead of a king like the people wanted, which is what we had in Saul, instead of that going forward, instead now the Lord has chosen a king for himself. Uh, there's one who would have a heart turned toward the Lord, and that king is David. Uh, so David's been anointed, even amid the danger from, from Saul and, and the discouragement that Samuel himself was facing on the other side of Saul's failure. Uh, even with all of that going on, the Lord's kingly purposes move forward. And by the end of chapter, or by the end of verse 13, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David uh, from that day forward. So, so David clearly is being marked out here as God's man. David is the king of the Lord's choosing. He's the one who has a heart after God's own heart. And we know ultimately as things go on, we'll find out that the Lord's uh, going to promise through David's family line that the ultimate and, and final Messiah, the, the Savior King of God's people is going to come. Jesus will come through David's uh, family line eventually. But as for right now, in verse 13, we left things with the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and he's engaging now, he's going to engage in this royal ministry that he's called to. That's verse 13. And then we read verse 14 next, which says, The Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. And then four more times in the context of verses 14 to 23, we're reminded that the Lord sent an evil spirit to, to, uh, to uh, bother Saul. Now, uh, in studying the text this week, I, I, I remembered a long time ago listening to Alistair Begg uh, give a series of lectures on preaching. And one of the things he said was this. He said, uh, if you're in the middle of a sermon, and if in the middle of that sermon a bird flies into the, the meeting room that you're in, uh, you have to stop the sermon and say something about the bird. You have to acknowledge the bird flying around in the sanctuary or wherever you are. Because obviously, no one can concentrate on the sermon if the bird's flying around the room. Uh, and also, it would just be really weird not to say anything about the bird. So, so if a bird flies into the room during a sermon, you have to acknowledge the bird. And at first we hear that and we think that's a very strange illustration for, uh, for, for Alistair to bring up in the context of a pastor's conference, talking to pastors. Did he know of an of a, of a, um, extraordinary number of pastors who had had birds flying into their sanctuary and not said anything about the bird? And so he felt like he needed to address this or something something like that. But that wasn't the case. Uh, he actually was using it as an illustration to talk about uh, situations we can face in the context of expository preaching. And it's a situation we face this morning, where, where sometimes in a passage, uh, we and we actually ha just had this back in chapter 15 as well, sometimes in a passage, there's something that shows up, like a, like a bird flitting about in the, in, the, in the room that we're in, there's something that shows up that can't be ignored just because it attracts all the attention. There's something in a passage that attracts our attention, kind of like a bird would be flitting about the room. You can't escape thinking about it. You can't not focus on it. It's just there, and, and it has to be acknowledged and dealt with. 
And in the last chapter, we had, we had a few of these things. Now, least of all, you remember dealing with how the text says that the Lord regrets and then the Lord never regrets. That was one of the birds flitting about in chapter 15. And in chapter 16, we have another bird. And, and just from the reading, you know, you know what it is. Five times in this passage, we're told in different ways that an evil spirit from the Lord came and afflicted Saul. Okay? An evil spirit from the Lord comes and, comes and, and torments Saul. Now, the main part of, of the, 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 the main point, I should say, of the second half of, of chapter 16 is not that an evil spirit came and afflicted Saul. That's not the main point of the rest of these verses that, that we need to study. The main point of the second half of chapter 16 is that before David takes his throne, he first shows up as the servant healer, which is, which is of course, an amazing and glorious thing to consider. The very first thing we're told about the Lord's choice and anointed king is that he comes as a servant healer, and not just as a servant healer, but he comes as a servant healer to the Lord's enemy. Okay, which, which, is, which is huge and, and amazing as we think about the implications of what that's teaching us about the gospel. But we have to save that for next week because there's, there's a bird in the room. And, and, an evil spirit from the Lord begins to torment Saul. So, so we need to deal with this because if, if we're thinking at all, our immediate response is how in the world can we be reading our Bibles and be told that a good God is credited with sending an evil spirit? And then it's not a typo because we have it mentioned four more times in these verses. And then just in case we want to jump this chapter, it's going to come up again in, in chapter 18. And then it's going to come up again in chapter 19. There's no escaping this. Right? And, and so this morning, before we take time to run through the significance of the, of the broader narrative point here, which is something we'll do next week, Lord willing, this morning we're going to address the bird in the room. The Lord sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. And uh, while the bird analogy is, is somewhat silly, we, we are wanting to address this for, for various reasons. Uh, we, we want to address this, obviously, uh, with, with, uh, with some of the reasons that we've taken before as we've studied things that are a little more difficult. We need to understand that there are hard things to understand in the Bible. There are things that, that would be much easier to gloss over or run through maybe very quickly, but we don't want to do that. Uh, not just because it would be like a bird, awkward to, to not acknowledge it or something like that, but because by God's design, we know He's given us this revelation on purpose. Uh, it, it's by God's design that we're told an evil spirit sent from God tormented Saul. And God never does anything without purpose. So if He's revealed this to us in Scripture, it, it's, our, it's our privilege, it's our great ambition, it's even our spirit-filled obligation to think through well what God says. That there's no more important word, we affirm this, there's no more important word in the whole world than the word of our Creator and Redeemer. So, so this is here, and we need to study it, not just because it startles our sensibilities at first and needs to be acknowledged, but more than that, we need to study this because as the psalmist said, uh, says that the Lord's works are studied by all who delight in them. Right? We delight to know the Lord. We delight to understand His purposes and His ways as best as we can in our limited creatureliness. So, so we come to a difficult statement here, but we, but we come knowing that this content is not just here uh, to give seminary professors something to talk about in theology class, but what's here is for the building up of the saints. It's here to direct us toward the realities of, of ultimately who, who Jesus is and what it means to know, to know Him and to follow Him. So we, we, we need to study. 
And, and, and even as we begin the study this morning, I, I will say, if this, is, if this is something you want to revisit, it might, it might not, not because the sermon's going to be so good, you can be sure that that won't be the case, but, but it might be worth revisiting this even in the recording later if it's something you want to think about further, because it is a really big subject, and if we haven't engaged in it before, uh, it can take a couple passes just to, uh, just to meditate on it a bit. So, so we're going to do this. You ready? Caffeinated? Ready? Here's the question, how, how do we understand this statement in verse 14 and other places in this, in this chapter? An evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment Saul. How, how can an evil spirit seem to be coming from God? Right? How, how is this possible? It seems so out of place and seems incongruent with our theological categories of who God is and all of these kinds of things. We need to, we need to work this out. And so we're going to work this out under, under three main words that I've written down in my notes as we go here. And I'll give you the three words if it just helps to, to have kind of coat hooks to hang things on as we, as we study. But the three words are this. The first is acknowledge. The second is affirm. And the last is apply. So those, those three words will guide us and maybe pull us back if we get, get off course. But acknowledge, affirm, and apply. That's how we're going to work through uh, what, what, we're, what we're pursuing here. So... First of all, acknowledge. And, and in saying that, uh, we're saying that, that as we start to think this out, we need to acknowledge a difficulty that's present more broadly in the Scriptures. Um, so, so, so remember what our verse says, an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment Saul. Um, in, in the case of what's stated here, some will look at this word translated as evil for evil spirit. It's translated as evil in the CSB. The ESV, I think, has harmful spirit. But some will look at this word uh, from Hebrew, ra'ah is the word, and, and make much of its, of its semantic range. So, so in other words, the Hebrew term itself can mean something broader than just evil. It's a word that can mean uh, calamitous or harmful or hurtful or, or disastrous or bad. It has a large semantic range in, in that kind of frame. And so some will see this as describing something more like a, a hurtful or harmful spirit sent from God upon Saul. And, and they understand the reason rightly. It's sent upon Saul because, because of, of God's judgment on Saul. That's why the spirit has come. Uh, but, but the English word evil is, is taken out and something more like hurtful or harmful is put in just because it's really hard on our theological constructs to have evil and coming from the Lord existing together in the same, in the same set of clauses. So, so the argument goes that, that the Hebrew word ra'ah, uh, its meaning is broad, and here it just means that the Lord sent a, a harmful, a hurtful spirit to Saul, which, which legitimately fits into categories a little bit more easily. We know Saul is now under God's judgment, and then God has sent a, a tormenting spirit to him because of this, and that word helps soften the tension that's here. Uh, so the thinking goes, we, we don't necessarily put the word evil in in our translation. And that, and that actually might be okay to a certain degree just in terms of of, of translation integrity. It's okay to translate that as harmful um, because the word does have the, the range and the spirit is obviously coming on Saul to, to trouble him. So a softened description of this contrary spirit, it, it helps get past some of the immediate troubles of an evil spirit being sent from God. But, but here's the problem. It helps when we do that wordsmithing here. However, this doesn't acknowledge a difficulty that we have in a number of places in the Bible similar to this that you just can't wordsmith your way around. 
Uh, and we want to remember our number one rule when we come across a hard section of Scripture is we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we have to make sense of this with what else the Bible reveals about God and the way He works. And, and if we want to do some, some semantic jumps and flips to get over translating this as evil here, the concern will just come up again. So, so we have to acknowledge a difficulty along these lines that's present in Scripture more generally. All right, we can't just explain this word usage away in this verse and go home satisfied because we're going to get hit with it again or, 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 or thematically in a different kind of way as we read our Bibles. So, so we, need to, we need to acknowledge a bigger difficulty here, and, and, and we'll run through that now. So, so we actually have one of the most striking examples of this, of this concern, of this seeming tension, uh, later on in Samuel, uh, later on in Israel's history. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1, we read this. Listen really closely. The Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and He, that is the Lord, stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. All right, so there's this whole incident involved with this, but, but just hear the line, the Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and He, the Lord, stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. 2 Samuel 14, verse 1. Now, we jump over to 1 Chronicles 21, where the exact same incident is being reported, and listen to what we're told there. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. In 2 Samuel, it's God in His, in his disciplining judgment stirring up David to count the people. In 1 Chronicles, it's Satan inciting David to this exact same task. Not a lot of word smithing you can do to avoid that, that, that difficulty. But there are other examples of this too. For example, in Judges 9, there's an incident during the days of Abimelech. And we, and we read, when Abimelech had ruled over Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. The Lord is active to send an evil spirit again. Or later in Israel's history, in the days of King Ahab, there's this fascinating interchange that a prophet reports in 1 Kings 22 about this exchange that happens in the spiritual realm. So, so just listen to this. There's, this. there's this gathering of the spiritual beings, if you like, in the throne room of heaven. And here's the text. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to march up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one was saying this and another was saying that. There's this interchange of these spiritual beings as they're conversing in the heavenly realm. Then a spirit came forward, stood in the Lord's presence and said, I will entice him. The Lord asked him, how? He said, I will go and become a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then the Lord said, you will certainly entice him and prevail. Go do that. So, so in that case, the Lord sanctions the ministry of a deceiving spirit against wicked King Ahab. That's difficult. Or, or how about Job? I mean, we remember how Job starts, don't we? That the heavenly beings are all gathered in the throne room of God again, right? And, and Satan enters from presumably roaming about seeking people to destroy. And, and the Lord asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And with divine limits in place, the Lord allows Satan to torment Job. But God started it with Job by instigating Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Interestingly, do you remember how Jesus' own temptation is framed in his earthly ministry? Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He's baptized in the Jordan River. Then listen to how Luke's gospel records what happens next in Luke chapter 4. Here's the text. Jesus left the Jordan 
full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led by God the Holy Spirit into the desert to what? Be tempted by the devil. So so we have uh, these kinds of verses, and others too there are more, but we have these kinds of verses and passages, and, and as we start thinking about them, we have to begin by acknowledging it's not enough just to downplay the word evil in 1 Samuel 16 and move on. Because throughout the Scriptures, there are multiple incidents of God engaging in such a way that evil spirits, spirits who deceive, and even Satan himself affects people's lives with God over and above all those things. And we, we could not like that, and we, we, could, we could decide, I suppose, to disregard it or to ignore it, but, but we can't get away from the fact that the Bible reveals this to us. And if we're going to be students of the revelation of God... Uh, If we're going to apply ourselves to understand who God is and how He works, these kind of passages can't be disregarded or ignored. Because by the time we get into the New Testament, we'll have all kinds of trouble with our theology. Some of us were talking about this a bit this morning, but you remember in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul, when we're told, Paul tells the Corinthians that a messenger of Satan was sent to torment him, right? That thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And what does Paul do? He asks Jesus to remove it. And Jesus says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus says, no. Paul, who is, who is no stranger to some serious exorcism, Paul can deal with demons. But he asks Jesus to remove the messenger from Satan, and Jesus says, no. We have this tension going on there. Who's really sovereign over all of this? Right? So, so we've got to be able to deal with these things in a way that helps, helps explain uh, the kinds of things we read in our Bible about, about how God works and, and what we do with this. So now, now what, the question is, what's next? Because we read these texts and in a sense we, we become immediately flummoxed. How do we, what, what do we do with these things as they, as they start to come together? We read them, so what do we do about that? Well, this is where we move from acknowledge. So we acknowledge these things exist in the Bible. Now we move from acknowledgement to uh, affirming. Uh, and, and by affirming, I mean there are two big truths from the Bible that will help us with this, which we need to, which we need to affirm. So, so we'll do this next. Affirmation. With me still? It's a lot of thinking for a holiday weekend, but it's all right. all right. Two truths that we're going to affirm. Truth number one from the Bible is this. God is perfectly good and completely righteous in all He does. That's what we affirm first. God is perfectly good, perfectly righteous, true and and good in all that He does. That's to put it positively. To put it negatively, we could say no evil can ever be attributed to Him. That's the other side of that same coin. And And this is the witness of Scripture all over Scripture. For example, Genesis 18, 25, in the midst of some significant stress, just to put it lightly, Abraham says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God only does what is right. Or in Deuteronomy 32, we have Moses making making this affirmation. He says, The Lord is the rock, His works are perfect, and all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. I mean, that's pretty clear. The Lord is the perfectly upright one, altogether righteous in all of His dealings. Or or let's go back to the book of Job. Elihu, the the only one of Job's friends who's not chastised by God for their wrong thinking. Right? Elihu. Elihu says rightly in Job 24, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. 
It's just not, not congruent. Right? Get into the New Testament and what do we read? 1, 1 John 5, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So, so when we start to work out a, a, a hard aspect of, of study like this, we interpret Scripture with Scripture, and a main stake we have to put into the ground as we go is God is perfectly good and righteous in all that He does. Perfectly good and righteous in all that He does. You can say amen to that. Ready, go. Say amen. Amen, that's right. Good. Okay. Okay, that's our first affirmation. God is perfectly good and righteous in all that He does. Here's our second affirmation. And, and for the sake of clarity, I took this statement right out of the, the more recently published uh, Zondervan NIV Study Bible. The comments are edited by D.A. Carson. Here's the, second, here's the second affirmation, and I quote, The Lord does not perform evil. Basically, the same thing we just said. The Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under His command in order to bring about His purposes. That's our second affirmation. The Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under His command in order to bring about His purposes. And this, and this is also the witness of Scripture. So, so let's think through how that second affirmation plays out, which we can see in a number of different ways, even as we think back through some of the, the verses we already uh, referenced. So, so here, here it is. The, the Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under His command in order to bring about His purposes. And that's true as we apply it to, to Scriptures about the maturing of His own people. So, so this is actually what we see in Jesus' own life, isn't it? Jesus is led out into the desert by God the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Now, now the evil one, the devil had foul and evil purposes behind his engagement with Christ in the wilderness. The devil's intentions were altogether wicked completely, but the Lord was over and above all of that, not doing evil, but the Holy Spirit led Jesus out to be tempted. And what was the ultimate outcome of Jesus' temptation? Well, it actually proved him to be the faithful one. Israel was tempted in the desert and they failed. Jesus was tempted in the desert and he proved himself faithful. Jesus was the righteous son. In all of that, he was proved to be the righteous one. And not just that, but even Hebrews reminds us that because Jesus faced temptations such as this, he's actually the one who's qualified to help us stand in the midst of the temptations we face. So extraordinary good and redemptive purposes come out of the fact that the Holy Spirit of God led Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Behind or over and above, maybe we should say, all of that, God is at work. He's leading Jesus through the situation where Jesus was ultimately proved to be the sinless one. And he was, in all of that too, made fit to be our high priest. He could identify with the full force of temptation. All those glorious truths about, about Christ. So, so the Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under His command in order to bring about His purposes. Not least of all, in the, in the maturing of His people. Satan tempted with evil design but above and over all of that, the Lord led with salvation uh, commitment in those things. Uh, so we, we say this again, the Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under His command in order to bring about His purposes. And this is what plays out for Job too, doesn't it? S Satan was instigated by God to assail Job. And Satan's purpose was to destroy Job. He, he wanted to, to cause Job through suffering to renounce God. But in that exact same situation, God was active toward Job to bring him to greater maturity. By the end of the book of Job, Job went from thinking God was comprehensible and even wishing he wasn't alive. He went from that to saying to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. 
extraordinary maturity on the part of Job by the time he gets through all of that suffering he endured. The Lord instigated the devil and the devil hit hard. But the Lord's maturing good was the ultimate purpose that finally resulted in, in Job's life. So to quote Sinclair Ferguson on this, on this subject, he says, In one and the same act, the purposes of God and the desires of Satan coincided, but with entirely different ends in view. The same is true in that report of David counting his men in 2 Samuel versus 1 Chronicles that we talked about earlier. Remember, the Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under his command in order to bring about his purposes. In 2 Samuel, the Lord instigates David to count his men. In 1 Chronicles, Satan's instrumentally, instrumentally uh, engaged in such a way that, that he instigates David to count his men. So we see the Lord, in a sense, standing over and above all of this. We see, we see Satan as this kind of secondary agent who's, who's bringing about this uh, this desire there with David. So the Lord is working through that even though even though it's happening at a higher level. And, then, and the same kind of principle in general about how God's work, it, it shows up in different places. Jeremiah speaks about it. Habakkuk, the prophet, we studied that a, a while ago now, but, but Habakkuk uh, has the same struggle with God. How can God be behind uh, something that might be credited as evil? Remember how Habakkuk begins, he's looking around and he says, there's so much evil among your people, O oh Lord, how can you let this just go on and on and on? God says to Habakkuk, I'm not going to let it go on and on. I'm going to do something. I'm actually raising up the Chaldeans to come down and punish and carry off my people. To which Habakkuk's more trouble. And he says, how in the world can you use more wicked people to punish us? How can, how can you, being righteous, use bad people to do this? And the Lord says, the righteous will live by faith and I'll punish all the wicked ultimately. To which Habakkuk responds, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vine, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That the Lord will work through even dark means as the one who is completely sovereign over His good purposes. So, so, so our first affirmation from the Bible is that the Lord is perfectly good and righteous in all that He does. Our second affirmation from the Bible is that the Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under His command in order to bring about His purposes. And in the case of his people, his purposes of maturity in our lives. We see this play out in the, in the Bible. And in the case of the Lord's enemies, the Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under his command in order to bring about his purposes of, of judgment. Of judgment as well. Which is the case with Saul here, to whom the Lord sent an evil spirit. This is the case of Ahab, uh, with Ahab later on, uh, for whom the Lord sanctions that deceiving spirit. And, and so... And so is the case of, of things ongoing, even as we get into the New Testament. Because we read things like in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Paul, Paul can speak in, in ways that we need to have grounded in the theology we learn in our Old Testament. Just listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12. Listen to this. To those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved, God sends them a strong delusion. God sends them deception. So that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. So, so the witness of Scripture from, from Joseph to Job, Jeremiah to Jesus, that the, the Lord works for ultimate well-being and blessing for those who trust in Him. And then we see King Saul, Ahab, all who persist in unbelief, refusing to yield to the Lord. The Lord also works for judgment, and He does these things with these two truths firmly in place. Number one, the Lord is perfectly good and righteous in all that He does. Number two, the Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under His command in order to bring about His purposes. I'll give, I'll give you the same thing in a little bit more theologically hoity-toity language. 
Uh, sometimes, sometimes this is helpful, sometimes it's not. It's saying the same thing. If you want to forget it, you can. But I found it to be a helpful statement um, as, as, I've, as I've studied over, over time. And it's this. Here it is. This is big, but, but, but it's good. The Lord, the Lord stands over and above all things. But the Lord stands over and above all things asymmetrically. So that good is always attributable to Him. And evil is always attributable to secondary causalities. That's theologically hoity-toity. Let me say it one more time. The Lord stands over and above all things, but He does so asymmetrically, so that good is always attributable to Him, and evil is always attributable to secondary causalities. Take the temptation of Christ, for example. The good in the temptation of Christ is attributable entire to the, entirely to the leading and sustaining work of God the Holy Spirit. The evil represented in the temptation of Christ is attributed entirely to the devil as, as the one who would try to draw Christ away from the mission God had sent him for. That evil is attributable to the devil, a secondary cause. The primary cause of the temptation is God, him working for good in that. So we start to put those things together and we develop a framework uh, for, for, for some of this. And I know this is, this is thick uh, for study, for, <laughs> it's a thick study for our holiday weekend. But remember how, how the writer to the Hebrews, remember what he says to them? He should be able to move from milk to meat. You should be able to move from baby stuff to big kid stuff. And this is one of those, this is one of those things where we, we can do this. We move to, to some of these, uh, these deeper truths, and it, it's critical for our Christian maturity. So I'll just give you, these are the first two affirmations. We'll talk then about application. We'll be done. But, but the first affirmation, the Lord is perfectly good and righteous in all that he does. Second, the Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under his command in order to bring about his purposes. We hold those two things. So we've got the acknowledgement. We see this tension, if you would call it that. This, this exists in the Scriptures. And then uh, we have this affirmation of those two big truths. And now let's finish with some points of application. I'll give, give you a few here. Uh, the first application point centers around, uh, we could just say, humility. Humility. Uh, maybe you remember the story I told you a couple weeks, a few weeks ago now maybe, of the, of the small toddler who was walking up my street to the, to the street corner and not realizing they should have stopped uh, before walking out into the road at the end of the street, and the parents were very concerned. They grabbed the kid immediately, but the kid looked so genuinely confused that they'd been grabbed because they were doing such a good job walking. I mean, they were just doing a masterful job walking. Kids reach in, or parents reach in and grab him as he gets up to the street. Um, but 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 that's because, and the toddler was confused. But that's because they couldn't comprehend with their tiny toddler mind the danger that they were in. They didn't have a, a capacity for understanding to realize streets, you know, have cars and things like that. But the parents knew because their mind had greater ability to comprehend. And, and at some point, that's very much like us in our relationship to the Lord. Uh, our, our minds just can't comprehend the fullness of the godness of God. And this is one of those areas, again, that can bring us to that point. How, how can God stand over and above all things in this kind of way? We see it in the Bible. We know He's good. How could, how could there be any doubt to His goodness just given the cross of Christ alone? But, but, it's, but it is bigger than we can totally grasp. And that actually shouldn't leave us floundering in our faith, but that should leave our faith increased as our hearts are humbled, realizing that God in these ways is showing the godness of God. He's proving the supremacy of who He is. It should humble us to be reminded that the God of the cosmos is a God ultimately beyond our full comprehension who stands over and above what? All rulers and powers and authority in total dominion and sovereignty. Right? I don't know if you have to talk about a fuzzy mic or just birds that fly into the room. A fuzzy mic. Am I doing something wrong? It's just the mic? Okay. 
Um, so application point one is humility there. You're God and I'm not. That's where we end up. You're infinite. You're full of power, justice, goodness, and truth. And, and as we think about these things, sometimes it's just like we're, we're feeling like we're on the edge of the Grand Canyon staring out and realizing our smallness. It, it humbles us to, to consider this. I'm small. You're vast, O oh Lord. And these truths work humility in us. That's, that's an important thing. And along those same lines, another application point is that of reverence. Uh, the, the Lord stands over all things and, and He will bring just and complete judgment on, on, on those who are set against Him, which is really what's going on in 1 Samuel 16 there with Saul. Uh, we're told the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul, an evil spirit from the Lord torments Saul, because to reject God as Saul has done, uh, Paul brings the same thing up in 2 Thessalonians, to reject God as Saul has done is not to actually remain in neutral territory before God. Uh, but like Saul, to persist in rejecting God is ultimately to have God set against us. And that, and that should inspire a level of reverential awe to a certain degree. This brings us into those categories that Scripture defines by the fear of the Lord and these things. Because to be against the Lord is dangerous. We see Him as the one over all powers, who has all powers at His disposal for the purposes of His goodness and justice. So, so we're just renewed in this kind of thing in our turning to Him. Right? Jason brought up Psalm 51 earlier Earlier today. What does David say in the midst of his repentance in Psalm 51? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And there's that trembling. I saw what happened with Saul. Maintain me, O Lord. And so there's this reverential awe. Uh, the counsel of the Lord always stands. He's over and above all things. It leaves us in this place of, of awe-inspired uh, fear in the best sense of the word. We, we're reverent before the Lord. Um, so, so there's that humility, reverence. The third word uh, for application, I don't know if this is necessarily the best, the best word for it, but, but I'll call it assurance, assurance. And this might be one of the, the biggest points that a subject study like this brings us to recognize. Um, passages like the one we've studied this morning and, and this concept, they can be disorienting at first, but when we pause to consider things well, we're actually given grounds for great assurance in scriptures like these. And that the assurance we have is founded upon the fact that Scripture's witness is, is that we do not live in a dualistic universe. We don't live in a dualistic universe. In other words, it isn't God on one side and the devil on the other. It isn't God promoting good, the devil promoting death, equal in power and eternally battling, and we just hope good will win. The universe is not a dualistic universe. There are not two equal and opposing spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. There is God, total and self-sufficient supremacy. If we get theological just because it's kind of exciting to do, there's God who exists in total ontological supremacy, whose purposes alone will stand. And, and while the evil one and his demons may be set against God, they're, they're, they're mere created beings and ultimately they are subservient to God and will come to nothing but eternal defeat under Christ. As Martin Luther put it so aptly, he says, the devil is still God's devil. He's not an equal and opposing force to Yahweh. He, he's a defeated creature writhing and awaiting assured eternal judgment. And so, and so this, brings, this brings assurance. We don't live in a dualistic universe. This makes Psalm 91 true for us, right? Ultimately, Psalm 91 holds true. No evil will befall me or no plague will come near my tent. Ultimately, that is true for those who are in Christ. The Lord will preserve us. Evil will lose because God is over everything and above everything, which is why Paul can say what he does in Romans 8. What does he say? I'm sure, just listen to this now with, with, with new ears. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor what? Angels nor rulers. There he's getting into the spiritual realm. Angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, their spiritual realm language again, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so, so why can nothing separate us from God? Well, it's, it's, it's not a, a dualistic universe. There, there is no one and nothing that can outpower God. It's God, and then the devil's going to be done. And so this can be comforting as we think along the lines of transcendent truth. There's an element of assurance here that God's good purposes will stand. Uh, to quote the book of, of Daniel where we have Nebuchadnezzar saying, nothing can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Right? So in terms of application, in these truths we've been considering, it just it humbles us. These things draw us out in reverential awe. They ultimately bring us to a point of assurance. And they also add purpose. We could go on and on with some of these things. But they add purpose even in Job's suffering. We see that while evil was present to assail Job, ultimately God's good purposes stood and Job was brought further along in a maturity in knowing God than he ever was before. Jesus' suffering, Hebrews tells us that Jesus' sufferings perfected him. Our suffering does the same. No matter what befalls us, God's good purposes are active in it for those who are his. So, so it will never be less than no matter what we face. Grace will always abound. There will always be final life and grace upon grace exists, which is exactly what James is talking about, isn't it? In James chapter one, this starts to help fill in gaps for us. What does James say? Let nobody say when they're tempted, they're being tempted by God. God doesn't tempt anybody to evil. Don't for one second blame the fact that sin is sparkly and drawing you away. Don't put that on God. Evil can never be attributed to God. But God is working in our, in our, in our consideration of trials to do what? Well, to bring us along in maturity so that our faith can be perfected, so we can be complete, lacking in nothing. God's working in these things. And so there's purpose as we start to understand how God operates over and above all things for the good of His people. And then, and then finally, we can say that in all of this, there's just a great deal of comfort, of comfort. Um, while we can know that there's very little chance any of us have ever or ever will be assailed by the devil, uh, there are certainly more important people to bother than us. We do know that Jesus was assailed by the devil. And no matter what darkness we may face, we must know that the Lord upheld Jesus amid temptation so Jesus could be the one who sustains us in the things we face. The assurance of God for our good is found centered on the person of Jesus Christ because we're with the one who's ultimately the captain of our souls leading us to our eternal home. And we can always frame these things by reminding ourselves that God's good purposes for Jesus, which we see play out in His sacrificial ministry, God's good purposes for Jesus culminate in God's good purposes through Jesus for us. And we can take great, great comfort in that, even as we see Jesus walk the dark roads. Now He's ours, and He's with us. So we can pray things like, oh, oh God, I know you're very big. I know you're big. I know your purposes can stand in ways that I can't fully comprehend. But I praise you knowing that Christ stands for me and that He's with me. I know your purposes are always grace in my life, and I rejoice that your good and saving objectives will always stand. So give me the strength and wisdom to press on. There's, there's always that comfort that we have knowing that the Lord is over and above all things in such a way. So, 1 Samuel 16, 1. Uh, now, now the spirit of, of, of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. And we affirm in that, that the Lord is perfectly good and righteous in all he does. And then secondly, the Lord does not perform evil, but even evil elements are under his sovereign command in order to bring about his purposes. Jesus recognizes these things in his own ministry. We know Jesus was, was, a, was, a, was a very self-aware servant of the Lord. 
And in Mark 14, he's speaking about the, the fact that he's going to be betrayed. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In other words, exactly what God said is going to happen is going to happen. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But then Jesus says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. God's good purposes are going to stand even though evil is active there in the cross of Christ. The Lord stands over and above all things. Uh, but he does so asymmetrically. So the good is always attributable to him. And evil is always attributable to secondary causalities. The greatest example of that, of course, is the cross. Wicked men sought to put Jesus to death. And in the context of the death, the martyred death of Christ, we find life eternal for all who will believe. God's good purposes stand. And so we're thankful for big truths like this that draw us out in worship, draw us out in an apprehension of who God is, and even leave us with an awareness uh, that the vast, the vast incomprehensibility of God is actually uh, not disheartening, but a cause for us to worship Him, saying that clearly He is God and we are not, but He's for us through Jesus. And that is a great grace. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that this would be an encouragement to our hearts this morning, that we'd be built up in your truth, that you'd draw us out in affection uh, for the Lord Jesus and the security that we have in him, the assurance that we have in him. And, and we just praise you, uh, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are sovereign over all things. There is, there is no one, there is nothing higher than you. You are the good God whose powerful purposes can never be thwarted and who will ultimately bring about all you've said you will do, both in judgment and in redemption. And we pray, O Lord, uh, that we would be brought in, continually preserved in your family of the redeemed, and that you would bring others into it as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.